Someone grabs your head and tells you your helmet is broken and tells you you are concussed. <laughs> you're done. Do not go anymore. And, and, then, you and then you ride, yeah, 40 oh. more miles. <laughs> yeah. Kids, don't try that at home. Yeah. There's a disclaimer on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Stand Up Pedal Action. On today's show, we talk to racer, coach, and personal trainer Nick Gould about the difference between biking in the backwoods of Maine and Durango, Colorado, and how to keep racing through hazards like snow and cows. Welcome, everybody, to Stand Up Pedal Action. They say that fast is fun, and if that's the case, then today's guest is probably having a lot of fun and has been for a long time. Today in the studio, we have racer, coach, trainer, Nick Gould. Josh, take it away with one impressive bio on today's guest. Right. Yes. Uh, so first of all, Nick, thank you for joining us. Um, we are here with, uh, well, first of all, you're, you're my coach, which I'm very proud of. Uh, you I'm are proud a too. pro mountain bike gravel racer. You know, you race for the Rodeo Labs pro gravel team which seems like a really cool group. Um, you coach professionally, you're a yoga instructor, you're a personal trainer. Uh, you are and have been a DJ at different times in your life. That's pretty sweet. True uh, story. <laughs> <laughs> and you, you coach entire spectrum, um, all different types of athletes and ages. And you're also a husband and a father of a, she nine months now? Almost eight uh, and a half. That's awesome. Awesome. <laughs> Uh, and then just, just to throw out a few exploits for, uh, for the listeners here, you, uh, in the last couple of years, you've been on the podium at every, almost every single gravel race you've been a part of that you didn't have a wreck. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Why would you have to bring that up? Um, true, I did have a wreck. We can maybe talk about this at a later time. Uh my last race, but in, up to that one I got I had been 100% um batting a thousand actually on yeah, podium appearances at every gravel race for the, and I've been doing it for 2 years. So I 14 in a row. Dang. That is like the streak, yeah. We're counting well, it sounds like we are. Yeah, yeah. But like you said, you've only been doing gravel for a couple of years. Most of your resume is in the mountain world. And you've done rides like uh, the Durango Death Ride, where you had the FKT for a while. That's 224 miles, 16,000 feet. Uh, you've placed pretty high up there in level 100 at 22nd in a deep, deep field. Um, you've been on the podium for the full growler. You've won the Road Apple Rally in New Mexico and won the Cave Creek Cactus Classic in Arizona and... Uh, won the N Sierra Velo 100K. Correct. Yeah, yep. yeah, and at so many more where you've been on the podium. Uh, needless to say, you've you're quite the accomplished racer in multiple disciplines, and Thank you. all around a really really cool guy. <laughs> Thank you. So thanks for being I really with appreciate us. Appreciate those kind words. Uh, we would we would love to hear a bit about your story and and how you got started in cycling. Absolutely. Where'd you grow up and when's the first time you threw a leg over a bike? I grew up uh, in a small town called Hollis, Maine, southern Maine, about half hour outside of Portland, which is the kind of main happening city in Maine. 
uh, but very rural area, um, kind of middle class, I guess you could say. And not a lot going on there. Football kind of was a big deal and uh, most team sports. But um, moving, going back to the beginning, yeah, I threw a leg over the bike when, I don't know, I must have been... I know I skied before I biked and I skied at four and I don't know the exact age when I first, you know, had that experience. It must have been somewhere around four or five as I'm guessing. Uh, but I do remember getting my first bike. I don't remember what birthday, but, um, it was a Huffy Thunder 40, like BMX bike and coaster brakes and like the the like pads on your stem and the pad on your handlebar and the pad on your top tube and Uh, that 40 was about the average weight in pounds of that bike if you're not mistaken (laughs) totally probably about how much i weighed too yeah (laughs) and that was that was game changer for sure um and then i got into bmx and raced bmx for a couple years at the local track i think it was in sanford maine and uh, it was called Hillside BMX, and it was built. The track was built on a hill, mm-hmm. and which was pretty cool because you didn't have to pedal much. <laughs> it was nice. like essentially like sprint out of the gate, and then like coast, and then like sprint towards the finish. Um, so yeah, I did that for a couple of years. I think that was age ten to twelve. Uh, my dad was super supportive with that. We did that together and did some bigger races like Schenectady, New York and Rochester, New York. Did some nationals, kind of got my butt kicked, but I was crushing it. Uh, I was the main novice state champion and I uh, would get the big trophies, like bigger than me. These things, the trophies <laughs> yeah, yeah, in the BMX ones, yeah. were like epic. Um, and and yeah, and then they, they uh, closed the track because they were actually it was like a place that was like storing boats and hmm. and that business took over the the bmx and they closed the track and it was over and i was really sad um it's kind and, of a, a lame end to yeah. a, what it sounds like a good <laughs> yeah. season of life <laughs> i mean i maybe like pro bmx guy right now you know but um everything happens for a reason and i took a few years off and didn't uh bike again until i was 15 and me and my dad got mountain bikes together uh as father son kind of thing and that first bike was a wheeler 2000 wheeler a lot of people might not be familiar with that company i think they're still around but they are a german company and uh this was a um a rigid bike with shimano altus c components if you've ever even heard of those uh, that is bringing yeah, it back. Toe clips, Ooh. yeah, um, a steel, and yeah, and that was my first mountain bike. And then, like a good 120 mil stem or longer, and really narrow bars, like the whole it. bit. Yeah, yep, yep. Very upright stem, flat bars, bar end. Got the upgrade of the bar ends. Got the upgrade of the Onza clipless pedals, elastomers. Uh, worked all summer um painting my grandfather's house and collecting cans because you get redemption on the east coast five cents a can so i'd go to the neighbors and i'd be like hey you got any cans glass bottles you get like it was like 10 cents or a quarter and then you turn them in and uh so i did that and got like a few hundred bucks and got a rock shocks quadra 10 suspend elastomer suspension fork that was like the big big upgrade yeah game changer i I was going serious yeah um and then 
yeah uh it was kind of funny because my father and i got these bikes together as this whole father and son thing and we would go do this shop ride that was a few hours away to kind of like learn how to ride trail and like in in maine you ride power lines like that's where huh. there's like double track there's not a ton of single track and if there are they're like snowmobile trails but the power lines were sweet because they're like these steep rolling double tracky stuff and uh me and my dad went and did this ride and it, he like was trying to hop up a curb at an angle like wheelie up it and he just stuffed his front tire into the curb and crashed and he like like sprained his wrist and uh he got pretty pretty hurt and was like i'm done mountain biking and that was like the only that was the last ride i remember doing with him so his bike just kind of like sat there Uh unless i could get a buddy and my buddy would ride my dad's bike even though he wasn't very happy about that um So, but then my neighbor, Jim Stone was was his name. He was mountain biking uh, quite a bit. And he asked me if I wanted to go for some rides. And he showed me like these sweet snowmobile trails that they were locally. And uh, he was pretty strong and I'd just go ride with him. And I picked it up. I was already a big skier. So it seemed to be like, a I don't know, going downhill fast, like seemed pretty natural. And uh, having the skills from BMX, made it you know the technical bits not seem i was, I was pretty good at it yeah. so um yeah and then i raced i got into i raced um beginner in maine for a few maybe just like one year kind of got my ass kicked and then i got my license at 16 and it was like no more bike and it was like girls and cars <laughs> and uh <laughs> whatnot and then i went to a private school for my senior year in high school and uh they had a um a mountain bike race team and there's like a main state championship series and like a regional series of the state championships and uh, i had a really good coach who i still talk to he lives in telluride now and uh, his name is jeff yangling and he, I was pretty good. I did well on that team. And we ended up winning, our team won the state championships at Sugarloaf. Um, and my coach had heard about Fort Lewis College because uh, they were winning national championships as a collegiate team and was like, you should check out uh, Fort Lewis College in Durango. Yeah. And they, it's like a really, Todd Wells was winning nationals and they were they were kind of on the on the scene for that. And uh, yeah, I, I went out and checked out the college. I got into the college. I checked it out with my mom. It's an important part of it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was all about bike racing, though. <laughs> oh, it yeah, was yeah. like <laughs> great excuse for that. And uh, yeah, and that kind of set me up for for a lot of success with that program. Yeah, I went pro after I graduated in mountain biking, and that was two thousand and two, and then raced pro. Oh, essentially on. I, I took a few years off there for a little bit, but basically nonstop until current day. And that's, that's, you know, a pretty interesting path because there are many, many people who might have flirted with pro or had to kind of scratch their way in while they were doing other things, you know, to try to kind of edge up into that world. But it sounds like for you is a pretty linear path, just straight in. Yeah, it was. It was uh, it just kind of natural progression i guess but it's funny when when i say it it seems like oh yeah you know that i just ended up there but 
I definitely got my butt kicked a lot. Like I remember when I moved from the East Coast to Durango, um, Keith Darner, he's kind of a local legend. He was my coach. And uh, the tryouts were super gnarly. And it was Saturday was a hill climb time trial. And it was up this classic climb um, called Extended Raider Ridge. And it was Tom Danielson, I think, did it in like 17 minutes or something. And I did it in like 30 something. And, and it has like over 2,000 feet of climbing, you know, and Durango's at like 6,500 feet anyways. And then that was just the TT, a full gas, technical, rocky 2,000 foot climb. And then the next day was three laps on the classic climb Telegraph Hill in Durango. Um, and then you came down Anasazi and did like black dirt. And it, it was like, it was like a four hour. I mean, I, I didn't think I was going to finish. I yeah. went through my whole camelback, my water bottles. Like I didn't have enough water. It was super hot. The altitude, everything. Like I barely finished and, uh, I made it on the collegiate C team. And, uh, I was pretty, pretty stoked about that. Was that a bit of a shock to the system uh, coming from Maine? Like, did you have any idea what you were getting into at that time? I mean, I knew that they were national champions and that they were good and that I was going to get my, I knew it was going to be hard, but like, yeah, it was those first couple of years, collegiate C and then collegiate B. And yeah, I didn't race collegiate A until my junior year. And I was definitely low man on the totem pole. Yeah. But it's cool looking back because I still keep in touch with a lot of those guys. I was actually texting with one of them today. And um, really, like, only a couple of us still race. And I'm probably the only pro from, like, I mean, there was, like, a good 50 or 60 guys on that team. I mean, it was a big program. So it's Dang. fun. It's funny and fun at the same time to look back and be like, man, I looked, like, I was – I looked at those seniors and I was like, you guys are so fast. Like, oh my God, like I, I, if yeah. I could just be like you someday. And, and now a lot of them are like, you know, overweight with kids and don't ride at all. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm still going. So, but you uh, did still just winning. have a kid. So we're going to see how that turns out for you. I kind of don't suspect that overweight is in your future though. I hope not. I hope not. I try. Yeah. And we're going to get into that at some point later on, because we would love to hear how that's going, what that's like going from just racer to dad and racer, what those roles are like in your life. Um, but we'll, we're going we're gonna to get there because we're not totally done with the story because we've got you two out of college. You are racing in the mountain bike world and somewhere along that line, gravel comes into the picture. So what was that like? Had you, what made that decision? Had you just kind of decided it was, you got as far as you wanted to go in the mountain bike world or just kind of time for a new discipline? Sponsorship, man. You know, I, it, uh, it actually road racing or road riding is what got me into that because uh, a guy named Jonathan Kavner, um, and I was doing the Acacia Park group ride every Saturday and um, just looking for some fitness, you know, working on my leg speed and working on my flats and all those things that I'm trying to improve on and uh, mixing it up with 
track guys. I mean, the great thing about Colorado Springs and that group ride is the diversity that it brings. You get mountain bikers, you get pro road guys, you get, you know, Danny Pate was on the first one that I did and, you know, Finsterwald and, uh, you know, you get John Croom and like the, you know, pure track guys, you get, you know, guys with one arm or one leg who are just crushing it. It's like super cool. I was going to say, because for those who don't know, that's, Sounds like pretty much the epitome of the drop ride. Yeah. Like, yeah. They'll leave you for dead. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and and who they are could be an incredibly impressive set of riders any given time, Absolutely. as you just noted. Yep. Young juniors, you know, like people come from out of town. You never know what you're going to get. Uh, but I got into this battle on the infamous zoo climb. You know, every Acacia Park ride ends at, with a hill climb. And at the top of the climb, that's like the end of the ride. And then you can kind of do what you want. And I would battle with this guy on this red Trek Madone with these stars and bars on his arm, you know, from track and uh, Jonathan Kavner. And we just had this like bloody fight every Saturday for that zoo climb win. And uh, he is really good. It's not a very long climb. It's like it's really like a five six to eight minute effort so it's not it's like borders that like vo2 max threshold it's like short enough where you can go way beyond threshold and into that vo2 max so like it's not a pure climbers climb right um and and cabner's really good at like any like 10 minutes and like i can get them but like under that and we like we're really close so we would battle and um and we became friends and we we started riding together after the rides as well. And yeah, I don't, I'd never raced gravel and he knew that mountain biking was my main thing. And he was talking about gravel. And, uh, and then one day he was just like, Hey, I want to take you out to dinner. And I have this concept that I want to, um, ask you about. And yeah, he said me and John Harp and John Harp's another guy who I only knew through Acacia park, um, he's the director sportif for the team and, um, and yeah, John was not at that meeting, but, uh, I got to know John very well, but yeah, he just asked me, you know, this is the dream. This is the vision. We're trying to start this gravel is, you know, this is a couple of years ago. And he's like, gravel's this hotbed and we, we think we've got some sponsorship and we're going to have some money and, and we'd like to have you on our team and yeah, the rest is history. That's awesome. And how, you know, how are you finding that? Because I, this is just totally anecdotal, but amongst other friends that I've got that are in the mountain biking space, you mentioned gravel and they will tell you that that sounds like all of the worst parts of the sport. <laughs> there's no fun downhill. There's no rocks. There's no suspension. You're just suffering. It's literally like a training ride as your sport. They're not completely wrong. <laughs> okay. Um, you got to love to suffer for sure. Uh, yeah, it's it's really like this melting pot of, of cycling. Like it draws from the road and drafting and it's tactical and you ride in a peloton. Um, and then it draws from the mountain bike because you're on dirt and you need to have some skills and you need to be able to let your tires drift. And sometimes you're on single track and mud. And I mean, it's, it's 
it's anything goes you never know what you're gonna get which makes it really exciting and the races are long so if you're into endurance and you like the long stuff you're gonna love it because it's always epic you oh you never get down the gravel race you're like oh man like that wasn't enough like you always there it's always hard you always are feel super accomplished when you finish uh, and sometimes you get to shred single track and, you know, sometimes you, it's technical and gnarly and you're like, whoa, like I wish I had my mountain bike right now. Um, so it's just like, it, it's, you can't, it's hard to define gravel. I, I, gravel is almost like not even the best word for it. I saw Jeff Kabush posted yesterday and he's like testing the new fox gravel shock and it's like 40 mils or something and he's like i don't like calling this my gravel bike because i'm like shredding single track and blah 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 he's like this is my all-terrain bike and i'm like yeah it should be good it's a good point like it should be called all-terrain bicycling so have you ever in one of these long races you're in the pain cave you're just like having a bad time have you ever thought to yourself if i was still racing mountain bikes i would be done by now (laughs) <laughs> well, it depends on the race. <laughs> Colorado trail race, that's not the case. That's true. Uh, you know, I've done a lot of mountain bike 100s um, that are shorter than gravel races. 100 miles on a mountain bike is much harder than 100 miles on a gravel bike. Um, so coming from the mountain bike background and having all that ultra endurance history, a 100-mile gravel race actually doesn't feel super long. But when you get up to like 150 or 200, then it it's, it, it feels more yeah. like a 100-mile mountain bike race. And you go through, you know, 7, 8, plus oh, yeah. 9, 10 hours. Um, so, and yeah. one of the things that a lot of people who love mountain biking love a little bit of that adrenaline, a little bit of that danger, a little bit of uh, don't know if I'm going to come home okay. And they might think erroneously that gravel doesn't have that. <laughs> but as we were talking in the pre-roll... You have a very recent story that gravel can be a pretty dangerous game. Yeah, I do. Um, in my opinion, currently gravel, maybe next to criteriums, gravel is like the sketchiest form of bike racing, <laughs> at least at the really big races. Uh, I just did Unbound Gravel uh, two weeks, two weekends ago, and... Uh, Got in a really bad crash about 30 miles in, and I think there was around 3,000 starters. So in gravel, everybody races together. There's no categories. The men, the women, the pros, the world tour, the back of the pack, everyone starts together. Um, So you're in these really big, tight groups, and everyone's fighting for positions. And sometimes, you know, there's two strips of basically, like, imagine, like, double track with just, like crappy gravel in the middle and on the sides and the flint hills gravel is super sharp it's like arrowheads and uh so you're trying to like not flat choose a good line but like be in the right position get some draft i mean 206 miles like you don't want to be on the front for very long so i was just playing it safe and trying to just do what i normally do which is just just wait 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 and these races just kind of come out in the wash and like three four hours in those guys are on the front like see you later you know and 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 that's when it's time to make your move and um i was just you know for 206 miles i was like that's gonna be my tactic like i'm not gonna get on the front and and maybe being on the front would have been better to to be able to see the terrain because we hit the first really steep technical descent which i didn't even know existed and uh 
all of a sudden, I was in probably the front 30, 40 guys, and the guy in front of me just slammed on his brakes. And, and it was the pace was getting heated. It was getting to like a really hard tempo, and it was getting strung out. And guys were just, you know, you're just sucking that wheel in front of you because it's like the gaps are opening up. And it's like, all right, finally, you know, we're an hour and a half into this race. And like now we're really, now we're really yeah. racing. And those are the moves. Like if you miss those moves, you get stuck by yourself or in a slower group that often is can be like the, the way the, the race plays out. So I'm just head down, sucking wheels, just trying to hold the guy's wheel in front of me and and it's dusty you can't see much of anything and then all of a sudden uh what time of day is this by the way well we started at 6 a.m so this is about 7 30 it was about 30 miles in and uh and yeah the guy in front of me slammed on his brakes and i swerved to i don't totally remember exactly what happened but my recollection the best it is is i swerved to the right around him i may have clipped him i'm not sure I was just, my front tire must have, it was very steep and it wasn't gravel, it was rocks, chunky rocks, because like I heard like 10 guys flatted right there because they just came into it too fast. And uh, I just hit a rock with my front tire, I guess. And the the last thing I remember is just hitting my head. Um, And I just remember that impact. And then I bounced right back up and I was super discombobulated. I did see some stars and I was kind of like swerving on my feet and some guy was standing right there because he was probably new. Like, this is going to be the place. This is where, yeah, this is where shit's going to go there. down. Yeah. And he like pulled me out of the trail because it was like a stampede of buffalo about to like run me over of like thousands of gravel racers ripping. Yeah. And my bike's still in the middle of the trail. My glasses are off my face. They're in the middle of the trail. He looks at me, grabs my helmet, you know, looks me right in the eyes and goes, dude, your helmet is broken. You're done. You are concussed. Your day is over. I'm sorry. And I was just like, and I saw my glasses in the middle of the trail and I went to go get my glasses and he pulled me out of the trail and he's like, dude, what are you doing? I was like, I need my bike, my glasses. And he got my bike. He got my glasses for me. And um, I got on my bike and my bars were twisted like 90 degrees. Um, and I tried to do like the knees to the front yeah, the tire knees the and thing, like yeah. pull it back in and I couldn't do it. And I had a tool in my top two bag and I was like, dude, can you please just grab my tool and straighten my bars for me? And uh, which he did. Uh, well, he asked, he was like, what's your name? Where are you? What year is it? Yeah, I answered all, all the these questions perfectly. Um, so I knew what was going on. I only had like a little bit of blood on my elbow and my knee, um, no broken bones. And I was feeling like I could still continue, but you know, with a broken helmet, maybe not the smartest thing, but I was definitely a little bit out of it. Um, but I, you know, I really wanted to like finish this race. Um, and yeah, he straightened my bars. I got back on my bike and my legs were actually feeling pretty good. I had a lot of adrenaline going that may have been. Right. And I just started drilling it for 50 more miles and I made it to the first aid station and um, I got to my pit crew guy and he's like, how you doing? Because he knew I was like eight minutes off the leaders at that point. And uh, I'm like, dude, I crashed really hard. And, and he's, I'm like, I probably shouldn't continue. And he's <laughs> like, all right, well, what do you want to do? And I was like, I'm going bye, And I left that aid station with like 130 miles to go or something. And I made it about 10 miles down the road 
And I was catching some pretty fast guys, some other guys that had flatted and maybe some guys that are strong that just are starting slow. I'm not sure, but like there's some bigger names that I was catching. So that was that was good, but it got really, really hot and it was like humid. And I, all of a sudden I started kind of like seeing stars again and feeling really spacey. And I stopped eating and drinking once Ooh. I, after the crash, it was just, yeah. it's hard to do in the heat anyways. I noticed mm-hmm. myself, it's harder to eat and drink. You just don't have an appetite, but like the, definitely the crash, I was like panic mode. Like I got to get back in the race, you know? And, uh, and I also, my bike was not shifting very well. I had bent my derail hanger. So I, there was like two or three gears that I wasn't getting. So I either had to like mash this big gear or spin this like super easy gear, yeah. which is not what you want on all these like little Those rolling, rolling hills. hills. Yeah. So I was like constantly in like not a good gear. And, um, and yeah, it was just like, I, I was like counting like all the things that I had going for me and the things I didn't have going for me and doing the math on like what I would have to do to finish and how much was still left. And, uh, I got to the top of the next climb and I, there was this, this lady just standing there and I was like, do you have a car? <laughs> she was like, yes. <laughs> and I was like, can you take me back to the aid station? I think I'm done. And I was just, just in that moment, I was just thinking about, the rest of the race, maybe I'm concussed. My helmet's broken. My bike's not working. I'm not feeling great. The adrenaline's wearing off. And yeah, and I, I abandoned the race. And as soon as I got in her car, my whole body just felt like shit. And I realized I'd actually damaged my shoulder quite a bit. I'd sprained the palm of my hand, my right wrist. I couldn't lift my arm up past like my belly button forward it was just and i thought that Mm -hmm. and the emt was like oh you have a separated shoulder i did that i went over the bars when i did dk a couple years ago you have the same thing i had you need to go to the you know doctors now and have x-rays and an mri and and you may get bone spurs he was like totally freaking me out this guy was an idiot um it was just ended up being just soft tissue in my arm shoulders like totally fine uh but in that moment like it was so swollen i couldn't lift it up at all um so it's amazing when you're racing like how you can't feel any pain but then you stop and the adrenaline wears off and you like realize like whoa like i'm super banged up um and ironically like there was five, five of my, including me, there was five of us on the Rodeo Labs team doing the 200 mile. And three of my teammates were at the aid station as well because they'd either crashed oh, or no. flatted too. Oh, and we God. only had one guy still out there. And he ended up double flatting and dropping out. So none of us finished, which sucks for the team. But in the moment, I didn't feel so bad. So I'm like, <laughs> wow, I'm not the only one. Uh, but it's, yeah, it's super bummer. It's just, it just like, crazy the sport how you know you go from like 14 podiums in a row and you're everything is geared towards trying to have success at this one event and then like you make it 30 miles in and you end up on your head like Mm -hmm. not even knowing what happened and and your biggest race you don't even get to finish it's just that's just how it goes well and it's a testament to how much you had in terms of investment and energy in that because everything you just described after the accident itself is a hundred percent in the don't try this at home kids like concussion handbook as we now know you know everything about that of getting back on their bike 
pushing through the aid station, like all like everything that you were saying about someone it. grabs your head and tells you your helmet is broken and tells you you are concussed, you're done, do not go anymore, and then you, and go. Then you ride, yeah, forty oh. more miles. <laughs> yeah, kids, don't try that at home. Yeah. There's a disclaimer on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Check the box. Yeah. <laughs> Check the box. Yeah. And maybe a uh was do that... as I say, not as I do, yeah, right? There you go. That's the one. <laughs> learn from coach. Yeah, learn from coach. Um and also I suppose a uh a thing about uh knowing how to trust the guys in the aid station. Like trust your crew if they're giving you the feedback. Because were they telling you like, hey man, we don't think you should go or were they no, leaving it up to you? No, he was like you know, no, he didn't. He was quiet. He didn't try okay. and yeah, lead me one way or another, which I appreciated. He he was like made me made left the decision completely up to me. Yeah. And I, you know, 10 miles down the road I made the right one. It just took me 50 miles to get there. Right. Yeah, sometimes it's better to ride another day. Yeah. But I mean, having a daughter. Yeah. You, you think about that stuff a little bit more too. Because I could have done it, I could have finished, and and that pretty much from what I heard, the rest of the course is like pretty straightforward. But man, it would have been just not having the gears and just the pain that I was already feeling. It would have just been a, a very very tall order, and I don't know if the risk would have been worth the reward of just getting that finisher's badge. Because I have a lot of finisher's badges, and I'm gonna get a lot more. Um, and I've healed super quickly from this crash. I essentially didn't miss any training, but I think that it would have, the dent would have been much bigger. And who knows what the impact of the concussion and continuing to, to ride with that would have been. That's a really tough place to be though. Cause like, this is the race that you were trying to be on, on your A game for and had been built up for a long time. So I'm sure that had a huge, huge role to play in that decision. You know, and it, I've been thinking about that quite a bit and cause I always seem to do really well in the races that I don't care about. And, and a lot of times I don't do as well in the races that I do care about. And I think there's something to be said about that. And you're almost like self-sabotaging or spending, it goes back to balance in your life or maybe you're putting too many eggs in one basket. I don't know. I'm still searching for answers with that, but the ones that I am finding are just have fun. Don't take it too seriously. Like just race your bike, enjoy it. Cause I think even though I've been doing this so long that like consciously I have that have fun, I don't care attitude, but subconsciously you really freaking care, right? Like even like you can tell yourself as much as you want, like do whatever it takes to like, but like when you've, done all these races leading up to it and you've done all this training and blood sweat and tears and you know the the work i gotta do with my wife and family to make it all happen and to get to these places and to have you know your bike dialed and you know housing dialed and just all these pieces of the puzzle like so much has to come together and it's hard to not really want it you know like yeah like so you tell yourself like oh like I mean, it's got to be okay to want it, but at the same time, and Sean White has this great quote. I think I've shared it with you before. Um, and that someone asked him, they're like, how do you perform, you know, gold medal like every year? Like, how do you, yeah. when you're at the top of your, of your gold medal run, like what is going through your head? And he's like, 
you know, I know that I've prepared and I've done all the training to the best of my ability and I've done all the preparation. I've done everything possible that I can do. But then at the end of the day, you have to slightly not give a fuck. <laughs> Those are exact words. <laughs> and easier said than done, but like it resonated with me so much because it's like yeah. you're confident in your training, you're confident in your preparation, you've done everything that you can do, but then you just have to just go ride your bike. You just have to like go just have fun, enjoy that run, you know, like like just like don't let the pressure so I don't know why I crash, man. Quite honestly, like I don't know. Is there a lesson, you know, is like, yeah. is, was the universe trying to teach me something? Am I, you know, you can, you can overanalyze it all you want. Maybe you can choose to not look at it. Maybe you'll crash more. Maybe you look at it, you crash more. I don't know. I've thought about it a lot, but, um, the, at the end of the day, that's bike racing. Yeah, it is. I mean, from, from past conversations we've had, I know that you're big on the mental game and on being in the right mindset for for race or for training or just being being in the moment of where you are for each day, what are some things that you do to prepare yourself for when things aren't aren't going well, or on the inverse, when you're doing really well and you don't want to you don't want to screw yourself up, right? And like having so much success. I'm just kind of like riding that wave, right? I'm like, okay, I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing. Whatever I'm doing is working, so I'm not going to change it. Um, but there were a few things I didn't do before Unbound that I'm looking back. I'm like, I wonder if, you know, that affected it. Um, typically, and I don't always do this. It just depends on the situation. But I'll usually, you know, do some yoga the night before the race and some meditation and some visualization and uh, – help myself kind of wind down and then go to bed early and read my Kindle and take my CBD. And just, there's this, this whole kind of set order of things that I do to prepare myself mentally and to get my body to relax so I can have a good night's sleep. Um, and I didn't do that as much. I was in a, a house with 10 other people and one of our athletes was racing the 350 and she had just crashed um and she was off course it was about 10 30 the night before the race and um we were trying to figure out where she was if she was okay she wasn't answering her phone her light broke um so that was kind of like this craziness in the house and um yeah like there was just a lot of stuff that and, and no excuses right like i still could have done my thing right um but i was I, and, and possibly being nervous, like I almost like was harder to go do that stuff. It was easier to just hang out with the team and watch, you know, the pro, the road race that we were watching, like Criterium Dauphine, 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 yeah. Dauphine um, and just sit on the couch. It just felt good. Um, but if I was by myself, I probably would have been more strict to doing the things that I normally do. So that's one thing I've kind of looked back on and been like, hmm, I wonder, I didn't do that, you know, that time and, and look what happened. But I also have never done a gravel race with 3,000 people in it and like, you know, 20 world tour guys and, uh, you know, Quinn Simmons crashed and uh, he dropped out and he was the race favorite. He was the guy I was thinking would win. And I mean, that guy's got a much bigger contract than i do so i mean guys crash guys flat um and that's just the nature of the beast i'm learning with 
unbound dirty cons or whatever you want to call it you need some luck for sure and i didn't have luck that day but i'm grateful for you know the 14 races before that that i did have luck so yeah that's a pretty good record yeah and i'm sure there will be more to come no doubt <laughs> i hope so uh, yeah <laughs> i'd love to jump back a little bit and in, into you know your story because you you didn't stop at just becoming a pro rider you also went on to coach yourself as well and how did that come along the way and what has that been like adding that dimension to bring other athletes under your wing and helping them develop their riding well that's mostly true um i am working with a coach right now um and have been since january um but i am mainly self coached over the course of my career i've had two coaches well i've had coaches that's not true so i had coaching in my high school team and back in maine and then i had a coach at fort lewis college and then i was self-coached pretty much my whole pro career from 2002 until 2017 when i moved from durango to denver and i was feeling very unsure about how I was going to stay fast moving from a small town, being there for 22 years in Durango to moving to Denver. So I hired a coach and I worked with him for a year. And, uh, and then I figured some things out, figured out where to ride and whatnot. And, um, got some moved to Colorado Springs, self self coach for a few years. And then started working with, um, a, a new coach, Josiah Medow. Um, I, uh, after the apex, that's not when we started. That's when I knew I, we, that's when I knew that I wanted to hire him as a coach because he is my age and he has three kids. And I was, my wife was due with her baby at pretty much the day that the apex ended. And I was, so I'm like, Oh my gosh, I'm about to have a kid. You have three <laughs> kids. You just got fourth place in this race. You obviously have things that I can learn from you about this next step in my in my life and uh yeah and i've been working with him since january and it's it's been it's been great he's a huge mentor of mine um he's an amazing triathlete uh amazing dad super down-to-earth guy so it's been really really easy to work with him um and he kind of just lets me have free reign of what i want to do but just you know, guides me a little bit and helps me to maybe make the decisions that I might make normally make by myself to make those, you know, just gives me the confidence of what I'm doing. It's just somebody to throw ideas off of um, and helps me to coach my athletes better as well. So um, I've really enjoyed, enjoyed that and, and working with him. But yeah, for the most part, I am self-taught, but I've had, I've had guides and mentors and um, I'm always, always learning, you know, along the way. Little bits and pieces, which adds up over 20, 30 years of of racing. Yeah. What was that process like, though? Uh, Like, where did you go? You know, today, if you walked into biking, you'd never even tried. YouTube is a massive source of information and disinformation, if we're honest. But still, you know, the internet today is not what it would have looked like, say, even in 2002 for the quality and content that you could get. So where did you go? What took you from that point early on in your career to say, no, I can figure this out on my own? Well, I had an exercise science degree. So I went to school for 
for um, kinesiology and exercise physiology uh, were my kind of focus classes. Uh, it ended up being uh, kinesiology was the concentration, uh, but exercise science was the umbrella. Um, and then I worked with Rick Crawford for a little bit. Um, he didn't coach me, but he, I was doing personal training out of college and he um, was so busy with coaching athletes that he couldn't take me on, but he said he was inspired by my personal training business that I've created and he wanted to help me coach other people. So we kind of started a coaching business together um, for a little bit through one of my personal training clients who kind of came in as a uh, financial guy to help contribute to this coaching college. And there was a whole coaching Bible. And this is a very long story, but that ended up not working out um, for different reasons. Um, but it was all meant to be. And I continued on my personal training path and I kind of stopped coaching for, for a bit and was just doing personal training for like the next 10 years or so. Uh, and got really busy with that working at a rec center in Durango. And then I worked out of my home gym in Durango for, yeah, like a decade. And then I got back into coaching uh, just a few years ago, like 2016 is when I started pretty much almost like about basically in Denver, I coached a little bit under lifetime fitness. Um, and then I coached under whole athlete with Dario Frederick, who was the coach that I hired. And I worked with him for almost a year. And then he hired me as a coach to coach underneath him. And then I went, I moved to Colorado Springs and I went on my own. And then I started pure energy performance, um, which is the business that I have. What you're doing now. Yeah. Yeah. So what, at this point, what kind of clients, you know, we hit on earlier that, you know, it's like a full spectrum, like you're taking a wide range of clients, but who are the people that when they, they walk in the door, you say, yeah, I've got something to give you, like get over here. Cause I can make something happen for you. Like the ideal. Yeah. Kind of your ideal client for, for personal training or for coaching or both, both <laughs> for personal training. Oh man, the ones that are the least high maintenance, <laughs> the ones that want to do the Zoom sessions. Um, yeah, I, I just I prefer to work with athletes. At the end of the day, I I've done the whole like I'm going to help you lose 100 pounds thing, and it's just it's just not for me. I'm not a very good cheerleader. I'm a much better um, performance guy. Uh, and I've always done more stability work, core work, um, and having the yoga background it really has helped with that. Um, just giving, kind of adding that spoke to the wheel um, in meditation and whatnot, and sharing that through personal training. But that also carries over into into coaching. So I think for coaching, it's more like anyone who just really has the the dedication and the passion um and i don't have to you know be like did you do your work you know did you are you doing like they they just they do it and they do it perfectly and they ask good questions and 
maybe they're talented, maybe not. Um, and they're, they're interested in, and doing some strength training too, and, and yoga and mindset. And, uh, the ones that, that engage, those are the best, like the ones that, that, that really ask the right questions and, and, want to learn and want to know why this happens and and how they can be better and just like just you know just the, the little things and uh and they're just like sponges like i really i really like working with those people because that's kind of how i am and um and it's and it's just more interactive i get to know them better we have better conversations it's it's just flows better yeah yeah well, in that level of investment, that's something that uh, we recently talked to Caroline Bloom, um, ridiculous Ultraman triathlete, like inhuman amounts of training that she's putting in. And when we asked her what she thought was the most important thing coming from, you know, an essentially like an instant start from non-athlete to competing at an incredibly high level, she just said, I showed up and did the training. Like she, she almost seemed baffled by the question. It was just like, what do you want me to say? Like my coach told me to do this and I did it and I won. (laughs) This this isn't hard. It's not rocket science. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and that's what I tell people is, I mean, she, she nailed it with that. It's like, do the work, like on training peaks, like if you do it right, then it's green. And the people that have like all greens are the ones that see success. Like just, I really like um, Dario Frederick said, he was talking about Chris Blevins because he coached him for a while. And he's like, Chris just does the ordinary extraordinarily well hmm. for years. You know, he, he wasn't like, quote. like he just did the, the minimum prescribed dose, right? The minimum mm-hmm. prescribed dose, the prescribed dose, but yeah. not overdoing, not underdoing, just doing the work every day for years and years and years and years and years. And yeah, that's how you get there. So it's a how? fascinating concept, by the way. <laughs> kind of take, take notes over here yeah. what? about Can't how to be overnight? coached better. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, I'll note that when I asked you who your ideal client was, the one in the room was not the one you mentioned. <laughs> it's all right. I don't take it personally. He's in a separate category. <laughs> oh, yeah, there we go. I have a little world over here. <laughs> so, the fastest bearded client that I have. Oh, there we go. Yeah, I'll take it. I'll take it. <laughs> We're going to leave that as a mystery as to whether you have faster women that you're coaching. It could be Josh, because if that's the case. Yeah. Oh, well. <laughs> Not yet. Not yet. Not yet. Never know. Um, so one of the things we recently were also speaking with uh, Daniel Matheny about coaching and his philosophy on it. And one of, he came just kind of off the cuff with something that I didn't expect because uh, we were talking about the role of the coach. And he said, you know, you can, you know, you can go do training peaks on your own. You can look up a training plan on the internet that'll tell you anything you need. That's not what the coach is for. The coach is there to look at your data and see through that to understand how you are performing within that training plan. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, and what I to just kind of, you know, carry on from that is like the, the coach Yes, we, we set these training plans week to week or every two weeks or whatever, but it's the relationship inside of that and it's the, the back and forth and the 
the way that you get to know the athlete and you start to understand how they are different from everyone else, right? Like they, like that, that's why you can't just give a package to each person. Like each athlete is different. Their background is different. Their genetic code is different. Their amount of fast twitch fibers, slow twitch fibers is different. Their level of dedication is different. Their home life is different. So all these things, once you spend some time coaching these people, you start to learn like, these little things that make up so much of the recovery portion or the training portion. And, and a lot of it is just listening to them and letting them like work it out themselves. And they're, they're telling you, they're always just kind of telling you like, like, this is why I didn't feel good. This is why I felt good. This is what, this is what, what I, when I do feel good, I do this. And when I, you know, and, and you just, you're learning like, Oh, like, this guy's eating frosted flakes like for breakfast <laughs> like every day like mm-hmm. are we talking you know, about like, me come again? to find yeah, out you know, a few about months Josh later you know. <laughs> like, you know, like oh like this person like doesn't drink water and like little things like that or they like have never stretched before or like <laughs> that we definitely are talking about Josh <laughs> So you, you learn these things and, and you can start to add, you know, a little bit more here for what, for what that individual needs. And, um, and then on top of that, that, yeah, you know, there's the analysis of the workouts and, and looking at the interval data and looking at the normalized power and the heart rate and the aerobic decoupling and, you know, what, which interval the power went down and the heart rate went up and, you know, oh, but, you know, it was 110 degrees, like come to find out like, oh, yeah. you know, like there's always like usually a reason. Um, but at the end of the day, I really like that saying. Um, <laughs> it's the people that just do, you know, the work every day and just show up and and put it down. And then they give you good feedback and they they tell you, you know, like, I felt this way on this interval or this is – I had a headwind here or or I did not hydrate at all or I forgot my water bottle and, and like, all these little things that happen within the workout that, that you can – you know, dive into and, and take it a little bit further. But, but yeah, a lot of it is just relationships and having conversation. Yeah. One of the things that we've also been asking people is there's the question of training and, you know, how you work hard, how you know when to push. But then there's a the question of how do you rest? How do you know when to pull back? And that's something that I definitely wanted to ask you as somebody who is, you know, I mean, you line up on a race, you're up against some guys who weren't even born when you started racing. And that's a question that's on the mind of many people that I know. And I've ridden, you know, I ride with some, have ridden with some old guys who are, you know, 50s, 60s. They're either, some of them are still winning races. Some of them are out there saying, hey, maybe it's time for that e-bike. Like, (laughs) didn't quite have it to stick with for years. So what is that like for you? What does rest play? Like, what role does that play in your training? And um, for me personally, the rest is a lot of it is like off the bike, right? Like, yes, doing recovery rides and being smart about those recovery rides, like not going and doing a bunch of climbing and, you know, probably avoiding your mountain bike and just riding like some flat 
roads, you know, for a short amount of time, you know, high cadence, low heart rate, low power, like active recovery. Fascinating. Um, but, All right, we're not talking about but, Josh. That one I'm bad at too. <laughs> get, like, leave the Strava at home. Um, but, but like a lot, of, most of it, that's like 10%, like the other 90% is what's happening, you know, off the bike and like, what does your sleep look like? And, you know, what is your winding down regimen and, you know, no screen time, you know, reading a book and, uh, what is the additional life stress that you have going on? Uh, you know, your nutrition, your hydration, um, all these things, you know, when I'm trying to recover, I'm, I'm trying to hit, you know, like low stress, like not standing for a long amount of time, like not walking up and down stairs, not moving, not doing manual labor. If I am, I'm doing it slowly, uh, you know, stretching, foam rolling, getting a massage if you can, um, you know, drinking lots of water, I, you know, taking some good supplements, um, yeah, like no screen time, an hour before bed, going to bed early, all those, like tons of, you know, like 20 things, you know, that add up. They're all little, but if you, if you hit them all, they're going to really help your body to, to recover. But you'll recover faster if you're more fit. Like the more fit right. that you are, your body's like, oh, I'm not training. Like I can like soak this up. And when you're not as fit, it takes longer to recover from harder efforts right so yeah. the more fit you are the harder you can train and the faster you can recover in between sure but it sounds like once again just like the training it's the same principle do the minimum prescribed dose yep but do it right yep yep i shouldn't be seeing you know like one hour recovery ride and it's like oh three and a half hours you know, two hours of zone two, 30 minutes of zone three. Why do I see, what is this? 1,314 watts? Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what, oh, it was a, you know, it was a yellow light. It was a yellow light. <laughs> <laughs> those yellow lights. But, yeah. you know, those are little things that, that I look for. And and uh, that's the beauty of training peaks is, you know, you can't, can't lie can't for hide. the most part. You can't hide. So... It sounds like one of the things that you've been describing is this picture of a fairly holistic approach, not only to riding, but the place that riding has in life. And I was wondering if some part of that has come from your background in yoga, which I know a lot of people in my sphere who either approach that from one side or the other. They're either coming in just for the mindfulness because that's what they heard about and they're not athletes themselves. Or I know some people who are kind of in the camp of like, I don't really care. I just want to be able to be you know, I want to improve my balance and that's all I really care about. But for you, I'm guessing it's a bigger picture. Absolutely. I got into it from a sports performance. That was the, the main draw, um, recovery, yeah. uh, injury prevention, core stability, balance, strength. I mean, all, all of it, it's, it's, it's all so good, um, for an athlete, uh, and then you throw the whole mindset component in there and grounding yourself and um, awareness and, you know, all the other non-physical aspects of it. Um, it just resonated with what I needed in my life so much at the time. I met my wife in yoga. Um, 
So the bonus there, chicks, chicks and yoga. <laughs> <laughs> well, yoga cool. is better than the bar. Yeah. Um, <laughs> noted. Um, yeah, noted. So, but yeah, like that was 11 years ago since I got my teacher training certification. Um, and now it's become more, I definitely don't do as much yoga as I used to. Um, it's kind of like a pose here and there, or like I'm doing some foam rolling and doing some stretching and I'm doing a few yoga poses, but it's more restorative based. Um, just ha having my daughter, um, I'm just focusing more on, it's either like time on the bike or lifting my weights or doing the exercises, or I'm kind of like maybe stretching and hanging out with my daughter at the same time. But those, that like hour of carved out, like I'm practicing yoga has kind of, falling off a little bit um but i still squeeze in five minutes of meditation a day in the morning first thing and just sit quietly and just kind of set up my day and do some deep breathing and just kind of check in with where i'm at um and that helps that helps a lot i wear the mala you know that's, that counts right if i'm like not doing yoga if i wear the mala that means i'm like doing, help. doing yoga yeah, right now yeah. right? There you go. Yeah. So that's... <laughs> uh, but my wife is she's so dedicated with it Mo she's really into like kundalini right now and um and she meditates for hours a day and does yoga and um she's like yeah, I'm really inspired by her commitment to it, but I'm spending that time, you know, training. Um, so there's only so many hours in the day and, uh, I'm, yeah, I'm choosing to just spend them doing more of the physical stuff right now. Um, but I do try and squeeze it in where I can. Uh, but I think just over the course of those 10 years and or so that I've been doing it, and going to school for sports psychology and working on a master's in that and just diving into that whole sphere, um, it does heighten your sense of awareness when you're in a crazy space like a bike race. Um, I definitely feel like I'm pretty good at recognizing how I feel and the positive mindset and the negative mindset and you know, the positive and negative thoughts and and being able to really see them and 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 change them and have that awareness to change a negative thought to a positive thought. Because if you don't have the awareness, you're just going to be in it, right? And you don't right. even you, you can't even change it because you don't even know that it's happening. And you just usually snowball down the road of the thought that you're having. Um, so I I yeah I think it's I would say contribute it to you know even taking that five minutes a day to just sit and breathe and and yeah it, but it's a, it's a constant practice you know being present it does uh, like i i guess it gets easier but like we, it's also easier to distract yourself more so the busier you are the harder it is and, and you just always have to be practicing even just you saying it you know like earlier to, I, I i hadn't even thought of it today like i'm like oh man yeah like yeah breathe presence like mm -hmm. awareness like because you just you know yeah I mean, life gets busy and well uh, and yours got a lot busier eight and a half months ago <laughs> and this was one thing that i wanted to make sure we hit on before the end here today what that transition has been like um 
Because it was actually when, the first time I met you was at the Apex, and not only were you distracted because you're racing for crying out loud, but there was, hey, I don't know if I'm a dad now. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that was kind of crazy. I, I was. It's still kind of digging myself out of that hole for. <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering how that was going. Dude, yeah, yeah, we kind of uh, wondered about that. Uh, yeah. So I'm really excited this year to do that race because my wife isn't pregnant. So I can really dive <laughs> into like the training and really prepare because I wasn't even going to do it until like, like the week leading up to the race. I just kind of decided I was going to do it no matter what. And, uh, yeah, and I did it, and the baby didn't come yet, so the baby was, like, three days later, so that was good. What, what uh, was the due date again? Was like, I think it was the 27th. And that was the day September of stage 27th. three? Stage, stage four. Three, as I recall. Was so she it? was born on October 2nd, so maybe it was five days later, something like that. She was late. That Which I said, it's like, first yeah. baby's always late. I'm like, yeah. she's not coming on time. Yeah. There's no way. I got my <laughs> Garmin watch on. I got, like, vibrate to text. I was like, if, if you know, I will always be within cell service range. I was like. Got to set some course records over here. It's yeah. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I, it's, yeah, it's going to be nice to to not have that kind of stress this year and to really like because i'm really excited for it this year and and training specifically for stage race um where yeah last year i just decided oh i'm not gonna do it i want to respect my wife and do as i say not as i do kids yeah (laughs) (laughs) learn from coaches mistakes yeah (laughs) so what would you say all worked out yeah there we go what would you say is the biggest we'll, we'll we'll take two the biggest lesson and the biggest surprise um, most of the way through a year of trying to be a dad and still race. The biggest lesson and the biggest surprise. The biggest it might be the same thing. Yeah. Um, I mean, Josiah, my coach, said something that really resonated with me one day. And he, we call it the 10% rule. And like when I get done with a race or maybe not a race, but a, a training ride, like you have to have 10% left to come home to. Like if you're completely empty and it's just like done and you come home and your wife's like, here's the baby, poopy diaper, she's screaming, I gotta go. Like, and you're still in your chamois, you're like, shit like i'm blown like i just need some water you know oh man um so yeah so there's the 10 percent rule just trying to save a little in the tank at the end of each training ride so that i can show up for my family um that that's something it doesn't always happen but it I, i i definitely try you know and even like if you don't if you're completely like exhausted like you can still pull 10 percent, right you just just like a mindset thing right you're like yeah. i got 10 percent more i could do one more interval i could change this poopy diaper um, <laughs> but um i don't know if this it's not really a lesson but one thing that, that was really cool was getting on the podium at a race having my my kid be there and like holding my kid up on the podium and um just having her be there in that moment that was pretty cool because the wife and kid don't make it too many, to too many races because it's just busy lifestyle. So um, I really 
I, that was great. And I, I look forward to hopefully having more of those moments of crossing the finish line. And I, I often pretend, you know, that they're going to be there when I'm in like the dark place in my race. I'm like, my kid's hmm. there. Even though, even though she's not, I like, <laughs> I pretend that she is because it just gets me through hmm. like, like what, you know, like, it's amazing yeah. what, what you can do if you think your, your kid is like watching. Um, so that's kind of something that shifted, uh, my training has definitely, the volume's gone down a little bit, but the intensity has gone up. I feel like I train a lot smarter. I'm not just going out and riding my mountain bike for three or four hours at a time. I used to just do that a lot and I would just chase some Strava segments, you know, and those would be my intervals and I get some volume in and, you know, three or four mountain bike rides are hard, but now it's more like, okay, I'm riding like, you know, two hours pretty much every day of the week or maybe like one endurance ride, but every other ride is like basically like a two hour ride and I'm doing like, you know, structured intervals and I'm, 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 and with gravel, it's nice because I can go ride my gravel bike and you can just go do your intervals on road. You can do them on a gravel road and it's just your power output is going to be that much more efficient. Yeah. Um, so that's been kind of a change, just, I guess, more, uh, quality over quantity, um, but now we got a nanny, so I don't know. I might be able to squeeze a few more hours <laughs> oh, in. Oh. Back to your old ways. We're going to see you back at the top of Strava leaderboards real soon. Did, did you ever leave? I, I don't yeah, think you really did, did honestly. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I chase a few crowns here or there, here or there. But I've definitely pulled away from that um, this year. That's one thing is uh, not not going for so many segments and doing more the the prescribed minimum dose a lot of wisdom there <laughs> trying to remember <laughs> those and yeah. then trying to get those koms in the races oh yeah 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 uh do you uh, do you have any fun stories from from racing anything that really stuck out as a random encounter with people or wildlife that you weren't expecting <laughs> <laughs> um you know no, I don't like nothing really comes to mind as far like I did almost hit a cow at this <laughs> at open range in Kansas. Um, that was actually last year in that race. Me and Kavner were uh, we got one two in that race and we were off the front and we were just ripping down a down a fast gravel road. Came around a corner and there was like a cow and its and its baby, a mom and its baby there and. Uh, just oh shit slammed on the brakes swerved didn't hit him light you know life flashed before my eyes and oh okay hammer on um said a near catastrophe a near catastrophe yeah catastrophe <laughs> yep <laughs> i apologize um, yeah yeah but i think one one story recent story worth talking about is the true grit gravel race this year because it was so unique with the weather and uh just you know, sitting in your car like until five minutes before the start. Well, yeah. For like, those who, for those who don't know, set us up the scene, uh, distance, duration, everything. Like, what's going on so for those who don't was, know that race? It's like an eighty-eight mile gravel race with I think eight thousand feet of climbing and no aero bars allowed. Technical course, proper like mountain bikers gravel race, and um, so I was really excited about that. And it's in uh, St. George, Utah, Santa Clara. And we were staying, like, we got this house, Airbnb. Like, I don't even remember the name of the town, but it was, like, 45 minutes, no, like, 
up like 3,000 feet. Basically, it was like we were staying in the LaSalle's, but the race was in Moab. And oh like we would do this commute. It was a stage race. So we were doing this commute like multiple times a day. And it was dumping snow up at our house. Like it snowed like a couple of feet over the course of the weekend up there. It was full on winter. And in town, it was like raining and sleeting. And they're like, oh, it's just, it never rains here. This moisture is great. It should be, the course should hold. It should hold. And then like the morning of the race, it was just sleeting and rain and 33 degrees and we were just in in my truck me and my teammates with like five layers on and just every piece of clothes like warm clothing that you had just heater cranked what thinking that they're going to cancel the race like they got they got to cancel the race like it's going to yeah. be muddy like these trails it's going to be peanut butter like what's it going to be like and like, sure enough, like this race is not getting canceled. And five minutes before we go to the start and it just starts sleeting really hard and they say go. And it's like a seven mile neutral rollout and the roads are soaked with puddles, like this wet, just rain water. And you are just complete before we even hit the gravel, just submerged in cold wetness cold and then you hit the gravel and it was just like slick and like slipping and sliding and fighting for position and uh i was there were a few crashes i was able to avoid those got to the front started climbing and then we climbed like 500 feet in elevation and it was just like straight snow and then it oh just got in it, I don't know, like 20-something degrees and just like big flakes, fast accumulation. It quickly, you know, snowed a few inches on us because we climbed up a good – that first climb was like 2,000 feet. And uh, and then once we got up there, then there, there was a breakaway that we were in, and um, I had a teammate in it and another buddy of mine who I used to coach was in it. And then when we hit the first big descent and it was just so cold, you couldn't feel your toes, you couldn't feel your fingers. And uh, and next thing you know, oh, my teammate's um, shifter battery died out there. So he had to abandon the race and it was just me and um, Ryan Standish. And then it just started just full on nuking. And it must have been six inches of fresh snow over the course of like the next three hours. And I, I think we had like 20 or 30 miles to go and there was just nobody out there. Like the aid station, there was like a couple guys and like they hadn't got there in time and they didn't even have hot coffee. And they're oh like, yeah, word. you still have like 30 miles to go and you're just going through this like making fresh powder turns. You can't even <laughs> see, you know, where like there was like a car had driven on the gravel road. So there was just two single track lines of from the tracks yeah. and you had to kind of stick those with like like six inches of fresh snow just completely frozen and uh how wide were your tires brutal. again it was totally brutal what's that how how wide were your tires on this 40 millimeter oh my yeah. god um but fortunately i had no mechanicals no crashes all my gear worked perfect i think my body went it's like it got so cold that it actually warmed up maybe like you just I think like we call that hypothermia <laughs> so i got hypothermic i warmed right up uh and then yeah and then the last 12 miles were on pavement and i've never been so happy to see because actually the there's 10 mile section 
the way you dropped down and you finally came out of the snow and then it was just wet, muddy gravel and it was me and this other guy and we we're taking turns pulling and your glasses are off because you can't see but so much wet mud in your eyes and uh, that and these like potholes, like like uh, puddle potholes that were just brutal and you'd hit them and you'd just be like bang and like your just body is just so cold it just you feel every little bump and then we finally hit that pavement and uh and it warmed up a little bit and the moisture stopped and and we finished the race and um and we ended up first and second uh and i think 15 percent finished the race there's like oh 300 racers that started and 15 percent finished and it was just it was just insane it was definitely the craziest race i've done recently so there's a phrase in the biking community, which is never a bad day to ride. I kind of feel like you pushed that a little. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we did for sure. Definitely represented um, the namesake of the race. It was a mind. Yeah, it was true grit, hundred percent. It was a mindset day. You know, I think it helped to know I was doing well. You mm -hmm. know, when when you're when you're in podium, you know, maybe potentially fighting for the win. It it takes a lot of pain away, um, and it was a really fun course. It was really cool terrain, uh, but man, that was really really hard. <laughs> that does not sound like a good time. Kavner had to take all my clothes off. I couldn't feel anything. I'm like in the passenger seat of his car. He's like peeling off my tights and like my fingers are frozen. And I, my vision was destroyed for like the next 12 hours. It was like when you swim in chlorine and you're Yo, super yeah. blurry, like just from so much mud in my eye, like my, my eyesight was screwed i was like oh that's great but it came back yeah. true, true teammate helping you out there yeah <laughs> he's a good friend he's helped me from various things uh so before we close out here um one of our, our questions we try to throw by everybody is uh the best day worst day i i think we might have heard a couple of these from you already <laughs> we might have uh, just got a good candidate for worst yeah, day yeah yeah, that was like the best day too, though, because I almost <laughs> won, and uh, I was super pumped at my results for that because there were some hitters there. Um, so that was like totally straddled both. That's actually that's a beautiful thing right there, and there's there's something in that that sentiment that I think anybody who's really spent much time on a bike understands, but maybe other people might think is crazy. Like my family, they all don't bike, and they all think I'm nuts because of that very thing, where you can say. This was the most miserable thing I've ever gone through, and I hated every minute of it, and I was physically destroyed. It was awesome. Like <laughs> Seeing like all my teammates there at the finish line, they'd all dropped out and just be in there being like, oh my God, like you crushed it. Like you're a legend. Great job. That felt, that felt pretty good. But I've had, there's been worse. There's been worse. <laughs> <laughs> How much time you got? Uh, we got as much as you got. Colorado Trail. Oh uh, man, this is. I've done it twice. I did the race, and I. But before that, I did the ride, and uh, it was. Uh, I started with four. Me and three of my buddies embarked on the Colorado Trail from Durango to Denver just to ride it, and we were gonna try and do it in like six or seven days so so still do it pretty pretty good and uh long story short 
I was the only one left after, like, for the last two guys dropped out the first day. Another guy dropped out after, like, the fifth day. And I did the last two, I think just the last stretch from Breckenridge to to Denver I did on my own. And uh, I, very, very long story short, I'm going to cut out so many parts of this, but <laughs> essentially I ended up uh, riding in the dark with on just a headlamp for the last like two or three hours, the whole, pretty much from the Platte River to Waterton Canyon. And it, it had rained and there was just the trail the trail wasn't muddy but i didn't have very good lights and i was so exhausted and just there was a lot of overgrown um brand, uh plants and trees and whatnot and i was just getting super soaked and there were like these widowmaker trees that were down and i would like come around a corner and all of a sudden i would like hit my brakes and i'd be like like come face to face with like the, the this pointy sticky branch that's just like right here about to like gouge my face off oh. and i was seeing things and all the colorado trail stuff that you hear about I was hallucinating i was i was just so ready to be done and um i was using my iphone the colorado trail app and it shows you like where you are and how much you have left and like it gives you like a play by play and it said that i had like five more miles to go and it's like 10 p.m now i don't even know how i'm gonna get picked up at waterton canyon like my wife's in med school she has an exam the next day she told me not to finish she's like stay in bailey like get a hostel don't come i can't come pick you up but i'm like i just wanted to be done so bad and uh and I'm like, I don't physically think I can do five more miles of this super slow single track with like this little headlamp. I'm just exhausted. And I was walking so much of it, any technical bit I was walking. And, uh, and then all of a sudden the trail just ended. And I, I didn't know that it was all like five miles of fire road at Waterton oh, yeah. Canyon to uh, the finish. And I was like, fire road. what? Yeah. Like, this says that I still have five more miles of Colorado trail. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah. did I miss the trail? And I stood there for like 20 minutes looking for like, where does the trail go? Like what? There must be yeah. more. Like, this is not how the, nope. I just didn't know. And mm. I'm like, well, I'll just keep following my phone. And sure enough, it was like five miles of like downhill fire road. And I was like, holy shit, I'm done. Like I made it. <laughs> and I was so happy. And then like the, the gates of Waterton Canyon were like closed at the entrance and I couldn't get out. And I was like stuck in Waterton Canyon. And I'm like, oh my, this is like a bad dream. I can't get, I can't leave the Colorado Trail. And I ended up having to like crawl underneath the fence to get out. And, uh, and I called my buddy who lives in Denver and he drove from like Wash Park to come pick me up and I, I went to this bar that was open there's like a little Safeway there and some some different different shops and I went to this bar it was like a Wednesday it was like it was like karaoke night like middle-aged mom karaoke night and I was like this, <laughs> sitting at the bar in my full kit you know so muddy destroyed drinking a beer while these like middle-aged moms are singing like Madonna like drinking <laughs> like gin and tonics and it was like I was there for a good like hour hour and a half before my buddy got there and uh yeah we put my bike in the back of his Jetta and uh 
Yeah, and that was that was that. It was a pretty <laughs> epic little finish. Yeah, not quite the grand finale you were <laughs> no, expecting. <laughs> no, no beer. Well, there was a there was a bar, so there was beer, but I, I you know, yeah, no. Uh, I was just so happy that there wasn't five more miles of single track because I was like, I was moving so slow. Like the the five miles prior had taken me like probably two hours or something. Now it's like, oh my god, I'm gonna be out here till like one o'clock. Like this is just, <laughs> yeah. I, am I gonna have to sleep out here? I wasn't prepared to spend another night. I did. I was like out of food, out of water. Uh, so that was pretty epic. I'm having a lot of flashbacks while you're talking about that. Yeah, you know. <laughs> you know. But, yeah, that's... Oh, I feel you. I want to go back. Yeah. yeah there it is. I want to yeah, go yeah, back. There it is. Okay. Yeah. First day ever, I want to go back. <laughs> I can do it faster. Nice. Nice. Uh, well, this this is just a curiosity question that I've wanted to ask for a while. But what is it about Durango that develops these freaks of nature who are able to just crush the competition in any setting i get that question i get asked that question all, all the time because we all want to know <laughs> I mean, there must be something in that animus river um well i think it goes back to to a few things F- for one it's a mountain biking town right like that it's like colorado springs is like it's track, it's mountain biking. I wouldn't really say it's a road town. That would be more like Boulder. But people, people, you know, Danny Pate, he he was world tour guy. He was from the Springs. So it's had some good, some road guys. Um, but Ma- Durango is just like straight up mountain biking. So it's funny, like my friends, my some of my best friends from Durango, they all have kids and like the competition between these kids, like these kids are on strider bikes before they can walk, you know? And like they're racing BMX at age like two. And it's just insane. Like how quickly they're on bikes and just the, it's just competitive there. It's just, and it's good, healthy competition, but it's, it's very, very, very competitive. So, it's just a bike town with the trails and then you've got the development programs and those are just they they start so young like they like they're the stu- the skills that they're teaching these kids these kids are like you know more than half my age when i started learning this stuff and i didn't even have anybody to teach me right like i you know like I mean, these kids are being coached. They're going, they're riding single track. They're practicing skills. They're popping wheelies. They're always, you know, they're riding pump tracks. They're at the BMX park. They're hitting jumps. They're, you know, doing skidding competitions. I mean, it's just, it's like, you know, super laid back. Um, Very, it's just, you just ride bikes there. It's just how you get around it's just it's just the culture it's so that i just think you know the earlier you start the better that you can get over the course of the years and they start them so young and it's just getting younger and younger and those the the fast kid like the riley amos you know and the quinn simmons they're just they're younger the like how well they're doing is at a much younger age of like like even like Todd Wells or obviously like Ned, like he was like in his thirties winning the world championships. But Todd was like, you know, in college when he was, you know, winning collegiate national championships. 
like Chris Blevins, you know, he's going to the Olympics. He just graduated from college, but you know, he's, he's won like, I don't know, 11 national championships or something, you know? So he's like BMX national champion, short track national champion, yeah. cross country national champion. So it's like when you win national championships at age like eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, like, yeah, by the time you're 21, 24, like you're going to, you could be in the Olympics. Uh, Riley Amos, who just won a world cup, you know? Um, I mean, he, he, I mean, was knocking on my door when he was like, you know, 16, 17, Quinn Simmons, same thing. Um, when I'm like peaking, you know, like having some of my best years, these guys are like the ones that I'm like battling with and they're like still in high school. So yeah, the young youth development. It's something that, uh, I've been talking with friends of mine about like in the cycling world that it's weird that that U23 designation it's kind of hilarious how often, especially in like even grand tours, you got guys wearing more than one jersey because your your under twenty three champion is actually in the yellow jersey or the pink or whatever. Yep. Like it's starting to be where that distinction means something very different than it used to. Absolutely. Yeah. So yeah, I just I think it just goes back to to your coaches. It always goes back to the coaches and the, and the parents and and uh and the community of durango like that's one thing that it it's amazing that it has that i always appreciate when i go back there is just the the community like if, if you need something you know there's a hundred people that are going to give it to you and everybody just comes out for everybody else and um yeah it's pretty cool it's it's a cultural thing it's a it's and people don't even know like i went down there and did the iron horse a couple weeks ago and it's like, that's the most competitive race I've done this year. Like, you know, they're like, my friends, my buddy on my team are like, oh, you got 11th? Like, what happened? You had a bad day? I was like, no, that was like a PR. <laughs> like, I've done that race like 15 times. Like, I like, was like racing against, you know, some of the best guys in the country. Like, I had a great day. Uh, and And they don't even realize because they're just like, oh, you didn't get on the podium. Like, you've been on the podium in like every race. And I'm like, well... Durango is different. <laughs> Lay off <laughs> me, bro. Yeah. Go down there. Go check it out. It's it's its own thing. Yeah. Uh, it makes me wonder, you know, Durango has definitely had a leg up in the youth cycling world, but it seems like the rest of the nation is starting to catch up and catch on with youth cycling and high school leagues now being so prominent. The Colorado League forming its own unit this this past year. And, you know, you've coached a lot of these kids. It's it's so exciting to see so much more buy-in from a young age. Kids just loving the sport. It, I think there's a bright future for mountain biking. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and it's it's happening, right? Like, we're all part of it. Um, you know, first American to, to be on a World Cup podium, Riley Amos, you know, winning U23. That was that last weekend. And, you know, Quinn Simmons, first junior world champion U.S. Um, so, yeah, and, the uh, Bear Development Team. Women's cross country, no slouches either. Haley Batten, Haley yep, Batten, Kate Courtney. Kate Courtney yeah. So we're seeing it. We're seeing it with them as well. Um, and then, like, I mean, just it's crazy. Like, there's so many other fast guys on Bear Development, like, 
yeah, like Riley's definitely the one, you know, crushing it the most. But like, there's like ten other kids that are. I mean, we saw the apex. They were that are all just at the apex. Ridiculous, <laughs> ridiculously fast. Yeah, they were all there. Um, so I think you know, there's just there's there's a line of them. Definitely skews the field a bit. <laughs> totally. Strava cool. segments are screwed now. Yeah. <laughs> On top It'll of that. It'll be fun this year to see who shows up. Yeah. Uh, Robbie Day is going to Colorado College now. Yeah. So he's our, super our legit. Segments. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. He was at the Iron Horse. I, I was with him for, for a while until the top of Mull's Pass. He rode away from me. Got a few spots on me. But that kid can climb like a mountain goat for sure. Super great attitude. Um, Josiah, my coach, used to coach him as well. And, uh, yeah, he had nothing but really good things to say about him and his vibe and type of athlete he is, really humble and just, yeah, yeah super talented. Well. Good for Colorado Springs. Yeah, there we go. Even if it's not good for those of us who used to have good results on Strava. But that's okay. I'm willing to take we that. We need hit. more trails. Yeah, I'm willing to take Ride that. Riding backwards. I'm riding up Caption Jacks tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> no. Definitely do Bad not idea. do. Yeah. yeah. Do, do as not, I say, not as I do. Yeah, as he said. In this case, don't even do what he says. Um, no, Nick, thank you so much for being on the show. Absolutely great having you. This has been super fun. Um, thank you. We'll call it maybe uh, maybe round one. Who knows? We might have to uh, have you back later. Check in later. Absolutely. There's a lot of depth to dive in. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Really, really appreciate you and all your wisdom to share. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Just a quick note as we finish up, you can find out more about Nick on his website at pureenergyperformance.com or you can catch him on Instagram at goldenboygould. If you want to know more about stand-up pedal action, you can check us out online at supa.bike. That's S-U-P-A dot B-I-K-E. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.